Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning. Thank you, Steve and Catherine, for sharing with us. Let's make sure I'm on here. Here we go. Uh, good to see you all here this morning. Good to see you online as well uh, during today, which is a, a very special holiday. It's a holiday that our family always looks forward to. Of course, uh, it's, it's the uh, Statehood Day of Arizona. Uh, Arizona's 109 years old today. I didn't know if you knew that, but happy birthday to Arizona. It's a special holiday today. Um, our family, by the way, we have a tradition of going out to dinner, uh, going to a nice steakhouse on Arizona's birthday every year, and apparently everybody else is doing the same thing because I couldn't find any reservations uh, for this evening at any steakhouses. So hope you guys enjoy uh, your statehood day here in Arizona. Happy birthday, Arizona. All right. Great to see you all here this morning, though. Uh, We are going to continue our series uh, on the book of James as we have been talking about getting clarity in an unclear world. This morning we're going to be talking about, as we get into James chapter 3, the power of words. And whenever I think about the power of words, one of the places that comes to mind immediately in the Bible are the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, the opening chapters of the Bible. Of course, we know that it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And one of the things that strikes me every time I read this account No matter how many times I've read it, really two things hit me. First of all, the power of God, that God creates literally everything that we see and everything that we experience, everything we know as creation in the universe, completely out of nothing. And so how powerful is a God who can do that? And then secondly, it's the way that God does it, that God does it simply by speaking it into existence. We see that in the creation account, we are told that God says, that God says, for example, let there be light, and there was light. That there's no deliberation, no resistance, just pure, powerful, effectual words that come out of God's mouth. And this is how He chooses to create. I think when we think about that, and we think about the 7.6 billion people that are on the planet right now, and all the years of human history that we have tried to explore this world that God has given us, this planet that God has given us, There are still places, as vast as this planet is, that we have not discovered, that we have not been able to classify depths of the sea, certain species that we're discovering every day. And and, and that's just our planet. That doesn't include all all the stars and planets that are out in the universe. And God spoke all of that into existence by His words. I don't know if that strikes you, but every time I read that account, it amazes me more and more. But you may know that God wasn't done at just creating planets and galaxies and animals and mountains and seas and those kinds of things. Is that He saved the best for last. The crown of His creation were human beings created in His image. And we find that one of the things that it means, which it means, there's a lot of theological implications for what it means to be created in God's image, but one of the things that it means, as we discover in Genesis chapter 2, is that it means that we can speak and communicate just like God speaks and communicates. Genesis chapter 2, verse 19 and 20 says this, The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field and every bird of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man named all the animals, the birds of the air, and the living creatures of the field. This is an example of what theologians often call the delegated authority of God. In other words, when God creates all the animals, He brings them to Adam, and as a a representation of Adam's authority over the animal kingdom, He allows Adam to name those animals. And I think what's interesting is that whatever Adam named those animals, that was their name. God didn't override them. 
God didn't, God didn't change those names after the fact. Whatever Adam named that animal, that's what it was called. And so what we see from the very beginning of creation is that there is something inherently powerful about words. It's a biblical idea and it's undeniable and it's one of the aspects of what it means to be created in the image of God as human beings, to be able to communicate and to realize that our words actually do have power. Now as we continue in our series in James chapter 3, Uh, this morning. You may know that James has some really straightforward and rather compelling words to say about what he calls the tongue. And the tongue is a metaphorical representation of what it means for us to speak, what it means for us to communicate. So that's certainly speech, uh, verbal speech, but it also includes things like texting and social media and all those things, all those different ways that we communicate in today's world. And to get the point across, James uses some rather memorable and telling imagery. And so let's begin reading in James chapter 3, verse 1, and it says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell." For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So, one of the things that might strike you immediately, especially uh, in the way that we read from Genesis chapter 2, where you see words being so positively represented, right? Words bringing life, words bringing creation, words bringing form out of formlessness, words bringing light out of darkness, life out of death. In this case what we see is James is much less positive about the human tongue in particular. And I think along with that, one thing we notice is the contrast, not only between the power of words, but also the realization that that although uh, in Genesis 2, words have capacity and potential for so much good, they also have capacity and potential for so much evil. And as James says, it's possible both to bless and to curse with the words that we use. Now, in the passage from James, there are certainly a lot more warnings about words maybe than we see in any other place in the Bible, in particular in this chapter. But James says, listen again to what James says about the tongue. He says, first of all, the tongue is a fire. Secondly, it pollutes the body. It It is set on fire by hell. The tongue is a restless evil, and the tongue is full of deadly poison. Not exactly flattering. And why is it that there's such strong terminology in this, in this way? Well, I think 
the terminology, the terms are strong and the pictures are strong here because James realizes the potential and the effects are strong in terms of how we use our words. Now, James's strong warnings here and really the contrast between the small thing and the effect that it can have is one of the major points of this passage. You see it in the three or four images that are presented here to us. First of all is the bit that's put into a horse's mouth. And he says, by just the small bit that you put into a horse's mouth, we can control this strong, wild animal and push him in a, and cause him to obey wherever we might want him to go. It's a small thing, but it has a big effect. And then he talks about the rudder on a ship, that even though large ships are thrown by great strong winds, that a small rudder at the hand of a pilot can be directed in whatever way we want it to go. And then this third image, which is probably the most obvious, probably the most visceral is this picture of a small spark or a small fire that can set ablaze an entire forest. We're going to get to that here in a minute in terms of why that was such an important image for the ancient world. But as James says this, then he finishes with this idea of the tongue itself being a small part of the body yet can set on fire or can pollute the entire course of someone's life. Strong words for us to consider. Now, I think these strong warnings are important for us to consider today, maybe more than ever. I think in our culture today, uh, words are probably as cheap as they ever have been. Just by the proliferation of how many words we see all over the place in a social media age. Consider this, just in Twitter alone, I don't know if you're a Twitter person or not, but you're probably familiar with what Twitter is. We've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Instagram's more about pictures, Facebook's more about posts. Twitter primarily is more about words. There are a lot of words communicated on Twitter. You know this if you're a part of Twitter if you tweet at all. But about 10,000 tweets are sent through Twitter every single second worldwide. At about, and that's about 500 million tweets that are sent each day. On average, about 5.2 words are sent in each tweet. So that means 50,000 words are tweeted every second and 2.5 billion words are tweeted every day just through Twitter alone. To, to about 330 million Twitter users every single day. And that, again, that's just Twitter. That doesn't include Facebook, Instagram, any other social media platforms. And when you think about that, in our social media age, words are as cheap as they ever have been because the economy, so to speak, is flooded with the supply of words everywhere. And yet here's the thing. Even though words are as cheap as they ever have been in human history, I think words still have the same effect that they have always had. And when you add to the effect that we live in this culture where we're kind of separated from each other personally, and we live in a moment where we are lonely and isolated in many ways, words that are still being communicated without personal presence have a way of having a, an effect that goes beyond our realization and our understanding many times of how those words affect things. Now, we've all experienced this if you've ever tried to have an emotionally charged conversation through email, texting, or social media. You ever experienced this before? A really serious conversation that you're a part of, it's emotionally charged, maybe it's a debate, an argument, and you're trying to argue this over email or text or social media. How does that typically go for you? Right? Not very good, right? Because we've removed the personal presence of somebody from the, co the conversation. And really what, be what it becomes is just fighting with words. I think also we have a tendency as James points out here, to think that words and their effects are much smaller than they really are. Think about the, uh, the, the wise saying that we were all told as, as kids regarding words, right? It goes something like this, sticks and stones will break my bones, but 
words will never hurt me. What a stupid saying. It's one of the dumbest things I think I've ever heard, right? Because only you realize is how ridiculous that is. I mean, I, I, you know how I know this? I got, from personal experience really, I got in plenty of fights as a kid, ironically because of the tongue, because of my big mouth in many cases. And in a lot of those fights, I don't really remember the fights. I got bruises, and a lot of them I lost. And so, you know, I got a lot of bruises and that kind of thing. But I always healed from those bruises. But I'll tell you what I do remember. I remember, and I think what all of us remember, is things that have been said to me throughout my life, especially when I was a kid, especially by people who I looked up to, to people who I was close to, and people who meant a lot in my life, either for positive or negative. And look, I do, I've done a lot of pastoral counseling in the past, and whether it's premarital counseling, whether it's addiction counseling or crisis counseling, you'd be surprised at how many adults are hanging on to things that have been said to them their entire lives since they were children, and how much those words have affected them on a deep, deep level. And the Bible reminds us of this repeatedly. Listen to Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love its use will eat its fruit. Wow. So when you look at the power of the tongue, and we ask ourselves, what exactly is the power of the tongue? Proverbs tells us right there, life and death. And in case that seems like a little bit of an exaggeration, let me share a story with you. This story comes out of Australia in 2014. In Australia in 2014, a 19-year-old girl by the name of Jessica Clellan, that's a picture of Jessica right there, was being abused online through her social media accounts. She was being, by two of her classmates, over and over again, was being bullied online with words that were destroying her reputation, that had destroyed her relationships as a result, and finally ended up destroying her life. Because Jessica, as a result of the bullying that she experienced online with these words, uh, took her own life at the age of 19. And so when we see Proverbs tell us that the power of the tongue is literally life and death, we see this play out. And she's not the only story that we have seen, not only people who have experienced this, young people in particular, but people who have seen the impact of words. And not only are the po words powerful, as we see James lay us out, lays out in this section, but they are notoriously difficult to control. And there are two things that James points out for us in terms of how words are notoriously difficult to control. First of all, in verse 2, he says, we all stumble in many ways including what we do, but including how we say and what we say. How we say things and what we say. And it's difficult to control at many times what we say. We know this by experience. We constantly say things that we don't mean, and we constantly say things that hurt people when we don't intend to hurt them. Sometimes we say things that uh, hurt people, we say things to assert control, we say things sometimes to insult people, to intimidate, and on and on and on. But there are many things that we say that we regret almost immediately as we say them. In fact, have you ever been in this situation where you're in some kind of uh, a discussion, and maybe it's a heated discussion, and as you're saying the words, you already realize you shouldn't be saying the things that you're saying them as you're saying it, and you know you're going to regret what you're saying in the moment, and yet you can't stop yourself from finishing your sentence? You can't stop yourself from arguing your point? That illustrates in many ways how uncontrollable our tongue can be at times. Again, in verse 2, James says that we all fall in many ways, including in what we say. If any of us could actually tame the tongue, we could be perfect. You know what he's saying there? The implication is that if you could tame the tongue, you could tame anything. 
Because it's the most difficult thing to get under control. In fact, he says in verse 7, as human beings, we've tamed the entire planet, we've tamed the animal kingdom, we've tamed everything out there, and yet we can't tame this little piece of our body that resides right in our mouth. That's how uncontrollable the tongue can be at times. The second way the tongue is difficult to control is seen in the effects that our words have on people and situations. Again, the overriding, uh, the overriding point of the story of all of these images that are brought to us of the small thing contrasted with the effect that it has in the big thing is how hugely out of proportion our speech can be in terms of just words that we say and then the effect that it has once it's released. There's an old story told about a, a, a woman who had a problem with gossip. And so she went to her priest, and she wanted to confess to her priest this issue that she had with gossip. So she went to him, and she sat down, and she said, I've been struggling with gossiping for a really long time. And I can't, I, no matter what I've done, I've prayed about it. I've had other people pray for me. I've tried as hard as I can, and I can't get it under control. And so the priest says to her, I want you to take, well, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a pillow, find a pillow full of feathers, kind of has the feathers in it, Take it to the top of the tallest building you can find, cut a hole in the side of that pillow, and shake it as vigorously as you can until all the feathers are gone. Observe what you see and come back to me. So she comes back to him a couple days later. She sits down and she says, I did what you told me to do. I took a pillow, I cut it up, went to a building and shook it off until it was all gone. And he said to her, okay, so what did you see? And she said, well, I saw feathers go everywhere. I saw them get carried away by the wind to places that I had no idea where they would have gone. And he said, okay, what I want you to do, what I want you to do now is I want you to go find every feather that came out of that pillow and go put it back in the pillowcase. She looked at him for a moment and she said, well, that's impossible. I have no idea. You just heard me say, I have no idea where these feathers went. They went everywhere. I couldn't control them. I couldn't find them even if I tried. And he said, that is gossip. Lewis Carroll said, once you've said a thing, that fixes it and you must take the consequences. Look, of all the warnings that are included here about our words, this imagery really of the tongue as a small fire or a spark, I think is one that was most popular for James's audience. And I think is the one that we can most readily grab onto for our purposes as well. In the ancient world, they had a strange relationship with fire. They had a love-hate relationship with fire because one of the things that fire provided, of course, was warmth and light. You didn't have electricity back then. But at the same time, it was very easy for fire to get out of control in the ancient world. And when it did, they didn't have the same firefighting measures and technology that we had today. And so it was very, and it was very common for a fire or a spark to get out of control, burn down an entire building, a house, a neighborhood, maybe even a town or an entire city before the fire could be contained. And this is why James says even a small flame, a small spark, can ignite and burn down an entire forest. When we think about the power of words, if we think about it from the standpoint of a spark, every word we say is a spark or a small fire, we have the capacity to give life, to give warmth and light and life to people, or we have the capacity to burn things down with the words that we say. James draws this conclusion for us in respect to speech in verse 6. He says, the, the tongue sets fire to the human existence. Or it sets fire to the entire course of life is another way of reading that. This, it seems, I think is the most helpful way to think about speech. It has tremendous potential with the words that we say. 
Now, the question then is, what do we do with this? And we'll spend the last several minutes that we have talking about that. I think James first addresses, one of the beauties of what James does in this chapter in particular, is he uh, operates on two fronts. He gives the warning to an individual, but he also gives the warning to the community. And he helps us see that there are individuals and communities that are impacted by this issue of speech. And as a good pastor does, like James, he joins the two together. The individual and the community are joined together hand in hand, including how we use our speech and how we speak to one another. But he starts on the very first verse by addressing the teachers and the leaders in the church. And having a pastoral heart again, James's concern is for the church community. That what is being said by the teachers and leaders has an impact on the church community. And he's calling out essentially what, has been ha- what had been happening in the congregation that he's writing to at the time. And that false teaching was prevalent and rampant throughout the area that he was writing to. And we can see the fruit of this false teaching by the things that James actually confronts in this letter. Things like, uh, uh, things like the distinguishing between the rich and the poor, having kind of this classism stuff that's going on, these divisions that are happening within the church. And so he writes to talk about partiality, which was a fruit of what was being taught and how the teachers and leaders at the time were, uh, were constructing the church. He talks about things like understanding how important it is for us to follow the, obey the commands of Jesus, to live out our faith in action, which apparently wasn't being taught in the church there at the time. In particular, what it means to love our neighbor. You see James focus on that. And then he speaks against the grumbling and the speech and all these other things that are going on between brothers and sisters in the early church. So this is community that's going on. Let's get, we'll get back to that in a couple minutes, but let's get to this discussion about what this does to our individual lives. What about this statement in particular in verse 6 that talks about the tongue staining or corrupting the entire body? Well, those are meant to get our attention. Of course, even especially when James brings in this imagery of the fire of hell. But then in verse 9, he says something else. Another striking, shocking statement in verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And then James says, brothers, it shouldn't be like this. How is it that we are so duplicitous with our speech? As I read these verses, it made me think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, James, as we've been covering, has been big on action. Action that comes out of faith and action revealing ultimately where our hearts lie. If you look through the rest of this section, what you'll see, especially in this chapter, is that James is pointing out more than our actions, the tongue and how we speak and how we use our words is a revealer of the heart more directly than anything else. In other words, for James and for Jesus, our speech, what we say, and how we use words is a discipleship issue. It's a spiritual, it's an issue of spiritual transformation. And perhaps more directly than any other thing we can observe in our lives, what we say displays what is going on in our hearts, for good or for bad. So what are ways that you see this reality in your own life? Do you struggle with things like complaining, bragging, lying, gossiping, criticizing, talking crudely, using words out of anger, being abusive or judgmental? If we're taking the point of view of Scripture here, what we see is that these are more than just words. These are revealers of what's going on in our hearts. The average person speaks about 16,000 words per day. Some speak more, some speak less. I think maybe women might speak closer to 20, men maybe closer to 10. 
not trying to be offensive, I'm just observant. Um, but here's something that's true, is that not only are the teachers being held accountable in this place, every person is held accountable for every word that we speak. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37, Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Look, I'm guessing if we're taking the words of Jesus seriously here, there's going to be some serious self-reflection about how we use our words. And that's good. That's what Scripture does. That's what Jesus' word does for us. Like James says, it's like a mirror that holds up for us and shows us who we are and shows us who we are called to be by the word of God, by the gospel of Jesus. And when James says in 3, 11, and 12, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. When he says this, he cuts right to the heart of the problem of speech and really actually points us towards the solution. Because as a result, the only way to change what is coming out of the opening, so to speak, is to change the source. If we try to treat the water well after it comes out, we'll be constantly fighting bad water over and over again. The only way that the water changes is if the source is changed, if the heart is changed. Jesus also said in very spring-like language, He gives living water that springs up into eternal life. Look, this, among many other reasons, is exactly why Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. To save us from sin and to change the source of the spring to change our hearts. Words that are spoken often reveal our need for salvation and our need for transformation as much as anything else can. And the way that we use our words often remind us that we need to be continually saved from the power of sin in our lives completely and over and over again. It points to our need for the gospel. Again, James is primarily writing to Christians when he says, Oh brothers, it should not be so. And what he's saying is that we should live life differently, even as Christians who are, we are, we are Christians who are called to be transformed by the gospel continually. Let me close with just an example of what that might look like. What does it mean for us to go back to the gospel as Christians and be transformed in this area of speech? What does it mean to get a new source in this way? Well, here's an example of what that might look like. We just talked about gossip earlier, so let's say that you have a problem with gossip. In its most general form, gossip just means sharing information that is not supposed to be shared. So it can be good or bad uh, in its most general definition. Uh, typically, it can be about someone. It's usually about someone or some situation. So it can be a secret that you're not supposed to share, that someone told you not to share. Or, in many cases, because it's being shared around behind someone's back and not to them directly, it tends to be negative and attacking in nature. It's often done, slander and gossip often go hand in hand. They're often joined together in Scripture because gossip lends itself quickly to slander, which is based upon exaggerating things or even outright lying about someone or something in order to attack them verbally, not to them, but to some other people who are listening. And whether it's their character or something we just don't like about a person, gossip typically comes then from a posture of judgment. We typically use any number of self-righteous attitudes to justify it, they, either they deserve it, or I'm just speaking the truth and telling it how it, is, how it is, or these people who I'm gossiping to need to know about this information that I have. It's going to help them. But gossip is one of those examples that can light a spark and a forest fire in a community, especially like a church or a workplace. 
Whereas talking face-to-face with someone has the potential to kind of build relationship, gossip does nothing. It never solves a problem, and it always makes it worse so that it can wreak havoc on a community. And it becomes a prime example of this spark that can light a forest fire. So how do you fix that? Well, not by tearing pillows apart, as cool as that is, and as great of an object lesson as that is, but it's returning to this issue and this understanding of the gospel in our lives. Here's how it does it. First of all, if we claim to love and glorify God, as James says, we praise God, but at the same time, we also should be praising those who are created in the image of God, or, or should be loving those who are created in the image of God. We should be blessing people created in the image of God, not treating them with disrespect and dehumanizing them by attacking them with words and gossip. We should honor them as image bearers by speaking to them, not speaking about them to someone else. Secondly, in the gospel of Jesus, we have been saved by grace in spite of our own sin. So, we don't, so what that means is we don't get the judgment that we deserved. Instead, through Jesus, we get grace and forgiveness. As I said earlier, gossip tends to operate from the seat of self-righteous judgment, believing that we are somehow justified to speak about someone behind their backs and even to render judgment about them to other people. People who know grace and know and understand the grace of God recognize at the same time the depth of their own depravity. And they are more hesitant to judge and to sit in that seat of judgment because they know the duplicitous nature of their own hearts. And they also realize how much grace they have received from God, so they tend to be more gracious people than judgmental people. And third, we've been brought together as a community of people as the church. As James is pleading with the brothers here in the church, what he recognizes is that what binds us all together is the love of Jesus Christ. What binds us all together is how God has loved us in Christ to set us free and to bring us into his family, to reconcile us. And so what that means is that Jesus went to the cross out of his love for us, laying down not only what he was entitled to, everything he was entitled to, but his very life to come into our world and to take our place on the cross. And when he did that, he stepped incarnationally into our world. That's the kind of love that we are to emulate as Christians with one another. Sacrificial and incarnational love. And the reality of that is that what that represents and what that displays is that we have an ability then to look at our first reaction in loving somebody in that way is to look at the situation from their perspective as much as we can and to give them the benefit of the doubt in every situation. That's the baseline of what it looks like to have sacrificial and incarnational love. And then to understand them as much as we can from their perspective why it is that they are reacting maybe the way that they are. Everything about gossip is just the opposite of that. It doesn't honor, recognize or honor the person. It doesn't love the person by trying to understand them, but instead assumes the worst of that person, jumps to a conclusion about them, and then tells everyone who will listen the conclusion that we have come to about that person and that situation. We've talked about Jesus' words earlier from Matthew 12 about out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, right before Jesus says those words, listen, he says this. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Now, when you think about that, this is more than just a wisdom statement because it's what what Jesus is talking about is the tree being our hearts. It's impossible for us to make our hearts good 
on our own. We can't do that. That's beyond our ability. So when Jesus says, make the tree good, what he is doing is actually inviting us to have faith and to trust in the only one who can make the tree good. The only one who can make the heart good who is Jesus himself. So this is not just a statement of wisdom. It's a statement of invitation. Jesus is inviting us to come so that he might make the tree good. He's the only one who can make the tree good. Now, if you're here this morning and you're, or you're listening online and you're not a Christian, and maybe you've heard these words today and you've thought to yourself, man, I have a problem with, the way, with, with certain things that I say in my life. I have a problem with speech. Let me say this, that that problem runs deeper than just the words that you say. That problem, as we have seen, runs all the way to the heart. It's a representation of the sin that you need to be saved from in Jesus. And Jesus extends that invitation to you to say, I am the one who can make that heart new. And whether it's what we say or any of the myriad of other sins that we uh, participate in, Jesus has come to save us from all of that, the guilt, the shame, and to reconcile us and give us the righteousness of God. Now, if you're a Christian and you've heard these words today and you're challenged, it is, to see, it is to take that invitation of Jesus is to see those spots in your heart that need to be made new again, that need to be transformed. And so no matter where you're at, I want to give you a few suggestions as we close this morning in response. I know I've closed three times this morning, but that's okay. This is the last one, I promise. Here are some suggestions on how to respond. And maybe you do, that, maybe you do this this week. Probably be a good suggestion, why it's fresh in your mind. But find some people who you know really well. People who spend time around you, people who you trust, people who observe your life on a daily or regular basis, and they observe how you use your words in particular. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's uh, friends, maybe it's coworkers, whatever it may be. And ask them, and do a few things. First of all, ask them if they have been hurt by any of your words recently. And if they can give you any specific examples, ask them for specific examples of that. Secondly, ask those same people whether they feel like you have a problem with gossip or slander. In other words, do you talk behind other people's backs in a critical way? If so, help allow them to help you understand where that's happening. And then finally, ask those same people where you tend to speak blessing or cursing by the words that you use. And by cursing, I don't mean profanity necessarily what i mean is cursing in the way that we've uh, that james has defined it for us here in, in james chapter three right ways that are harsh ways that tend to bring you know more death than they do life ways that destroy people rather than and destroy relationships rather than build relationships and then finally ask uh, do some self-reflection as well ask yourself whether there are any words or conversations that you tend to engage in as a pattern that are more about criticizing people than they are about loving people? Is that a pattern in your life? Do you find more complaining and criticizing and judgmental talk and, and all those kinds of things going on in most of your conversations or are more of your conversations about loving people, encouraging people? Are they more about the goodness of God? Those kinds of things. And then also, if you're on social media, you get a special assignment. Go back through your tweets your Facebook posts, your Instagram posts, whatever they may be, and look at them from this standpoint, from this lens. Are they more critical in nature and judgmental in tone? What do they communicate about those who are following you, those who are your Facebook friends, 
If they were just to take you from your Facebook profile, what would they say about the kind of person that is being displayed among those things? And what is, more importantly, what does it say about the Jesus that you follow? Now look, these questions and assessments are not uh, done to shame you in any way. I haven't given them so that you can be ashamed of what you're doing. James is very straightforward, though, with his terms, and he does this because he wants us to look at ourselves through the lens of Scripture, to line up with the heart of Jesus and with what the Spirit of God is doing, to go back then to the gospel of grace when we need mercy and to confess and repent and receive the mercy and grace of God, to find freedom ultimately from these sins of speech so that we might live more fully into the likeness of Jesus and that we might not be people who are cursing with our speech but blessing with our speech, not people who burn down the forests of community, but who build and plant trees in the forest of community, if you will. So let's uh, pray as we close. Invite the band to join us. Lord, we, we come to you this morning knowing that uh, what you have said in your word is very true because we have all experienced it in our own lives. I think when I think about how practical the book of James is and what you speak to us in your word, one of the things that comes to mind is just how immensely practical these things are. Um, we've all been in situations and we may have even experienced it as recently as this morning before we came to church where we've said things that we regret, where we've said things that, that have either intentionally or unintentionally hurt people. And uh, at times we're, we fall under the delusion and the falsehood of believing that those words, those things don't really matter. That they don't really cause the damage that you say that they do cause. And so we don't give them the attention that we are supposed to give them according to your word. So we ask you this morning to reveal those things in our heart by your spirit. And Lord, where that lays us is at a place where we are in need of your grace and mercy. And so I pray that your comforting good news would be something that comforts and wraps us in security and hope. We know that we have hope in the gospel of Jesus because no matter how strong our words are, your words, Jesus, are stronger. And no words are stronger than those that are in the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that that would be our hope this morning. That as you faithfully draw us back as a father, you discipline us for our own good, but you bring us to a place of more freedom from the things that so easily entangle us in this world. And the things that come from our hearts that need to be revealed so that we can allow you to deal with them faithfully. So when we take your invitation, Jesus, that you would make the tree new, you would make the heart new where it needs to be changed and transformed. And we thank you for your goodness and faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Amen. So I returned to my seat and... Uh, My wife said, now I know why you apologized a couple days ago. Uh, we had, I, had said, I had said something that immediately was something that I was regretting. And, 
And, uh, and so I apologized for it to my wife. I said it to her, and, and it was unnecessary, and it was definitely hurtful. And so I apologized to her. Uh, and uh, I got to tell you, it was not easy to apologize. It never is. But the freedom that comes from that and the relationship that has been reinforced because we went through just that experience is something that only God can do. And I want to encourage you with that. That as difficult as these things may be at times to swallow our pride and admit that we need to apologize or we need to face what is going on in our hearts, in the end, we're always given more than what we lay down. Be encouraged by that. Um, as you leave here this morning, we have prayer request cards. If you want to write down one of your prayer requests for us, whether it's for you, a family member, a friend, coworker, we pray over those things every week as a staff, a prayer team, elder team. And so you can fill out that card, drop it in the offering box as you leave here this morning. Go and be blessed. Have a great week. Enjoy your Valentine's Day, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.